Please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Today we'll be starting chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. As we go through 1 Corinthians week by week, we're discovering that the people in this church have lots and lots of questions. They are obviously confused about all sorts of issues concerning how to live as Christians in such a pagan and immoral society. Since it was the Apostle Paul who had started this church in southern Greece, he is deeply concerned about helping them straighten out all their misunderstandings. And he's doing so by writing a letter to them, since he's in Ephesus across the Aegean Sea. The questions or issues that Paul addresses give us great insight into this church and the world that they lived in. As we begin chapter 7 today, we'll notice a particular phrase that Paul uses to introduce his instruction in response to a Corinthian question or issue that has come to him by a letter also. And we see this introductory phrase a total of six times from here to the end of this letter. The first time Paul uses this phrase in the first verse of chapter 7 actually explains the exchange of their questions and Paul's answers. Paul begins with, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. In other words, 1 Corinthians is not the first letter that Paul wrote to them. Remember back in chapter 5, verse 9, he said, I wrote you in my letter. And we're looking at the title of this letter and we're going, well, this one says 1 Corinthians. Well, that's because it's the first one that's in the canon of the Bible. But there was another one that he wrote earlier that we do not have. The questions and issues he's answering in 1 Corinthians came to him in response to that non-biblical letter. It's also interesting that the Corinthians' biggest issue of tolerating an incestuous relationship in the church came to Paul by way of a personal visit from someone, or maybe a few not a letter. And this issue that he dealt with is in chapter 5. Now we have 10 more chapters to go in this letter. And all of it deals with the Corinthians' many questions and issues. And I'm sure you already realize, there's a lot of issues here. I've also been wondering, and have been for a long time, what it would be like to have a letter read out loud in a church that lists almost 
every issue that each of us has. And you're going, thank goodness, the Bible is complete. Well, we all know that many of these issues pertain to us, especially because we live in a world that is really very similar to what the Corinthians lived in. So, even though there's ten more chapters we see this phrase five more times after this. In verse 25 of this chapter, and then again in the first verse of chapter 8, and then in the first verse of chapter 12, and then in the first verse of chapter 16, and in the twelfth verse of chapter 16. From the sound of those pages turning, I think some of you actually got them all there. That was pretty fast. Now, that doesn't mean that in between those usages that he's not dealing with issues he knows about there. But he uses this as kind of a skeletal outline, this phrase, onto which he will add teaching that he knows these Christians also need in order to follow his other instructions. So that's how this works. So what is all of chapter 7 about? It's about marriage and the many questions that come with the topic of marriage. So in the first seven verses of chapter 7, Paul deals with a specific issue the Corinthians asked about in their previous letter to him. And if we do not keep Paul's explanation that he gives here in the context of the Corinthians' specific issue, we can easily come away thinking that this is a really strange paragraph. Did you hear what I said? Did you understand? We need to keep what Paul says in the context of their specific issue that they asked about. So let's look now at this passage. If you are able, would you please stand as I read the first seven verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. 
But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, you might have noticed that Blake prayed a little extra for this time in me going over this topic in this passage. But when you preach through the Bible expositionally, you can't leave anything out. And we shouldn't want to. The Corinthians specific issue here We've got to take a shot at understanding the world the Corinthians lived in in order to understand the quandary that they thought they were in. Kim Riddlebarger puts it this way, one of the main ideas of the Greek pagan world was that the soul was pure and trapped in the prison of the body. So the body was believed to be the source of both physical desires and sinful urges. Now how would people behave if they believed that the body is inferior to the soul and doesn't really matter? Now you might remember we've gone over this already and we have to as we go through this book, but Paul's already written about this. Either they would indulge in the body's every urge as many in Corinth were doing and Paul as I just mentioned has already dealt with their big sexual immorality problem in chapter 5 and also chapter 6 or they might deny the body any pleasures including the ones that God has ordained and blessed this too was a problem in Corinth, especially with some Christians and especially about marriage of all things. The root of that problem, the denying problem, is asceticism. And people who believe and practice in it are called ascetics. Okay, let's go over this again. There's two ways that you can respond to believing that the body, the material, is inferior to the soul. One is, because the body doesn't make any difference what you do in it, you can indulge in everything, anything, sinful otherwise. The other response is, because the body is inferior, you try to hold it down. You deny everything that's pleasurable, Anything and everything. Now, which one do you think our society is best represented by? Because our society and our culture has already gone this direction. What you do in the body doesn't make any difference. In fact, most of our culture doesn't believe that what you do 
at all makes any difference to body or soul. But this was a particular Greek kind of idea that keeps coming back. It's always been here. It always will be. And we're going to look at some of the implications or see these as we keep going through this book. In other words, this is why it's important to understand that we are body and soul. And this is why the Corinthians are confused about these issues and why they're asking for more clarification. Paul has already addressed one side of the pagan dualistic, which is another name for this, misunderstanding of body and soul. The indulge the body's every urge side. He's already dealt with that. And he's not through dealing with it, by the way. In chapter 6, verses 12 through 20 that we've been over, we covered the last two weeks, actually. We learned that the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body, quote. And that your bodies are members of Christ. And that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, Paul writes. And that you are not your own, but you are bought with a price. And so, what's the command based on that truth? Glorify God in your body. So right off the bat, we have to ask ourselves, do we understand this idea, the implications of what happens if a culture, and most cultures in the world still think this, that the body does not matter? You will see these ramifications. And that's why Paul had to put that in order first. Your body does matter. It was bought with a price. Your body matters so much that it will be resurrected with the resurrection body and joined to your soul in heaven forever and ever in the presence of Christ. Remember we said too that that's why death is so horrible. It rips apart what? Body and soul. Now, most of us need to come to grips or need to understand this better because we mix what we know is true about Christ with our cultures going that direction, already there. It's just a twist on an ancient idea that has always been around. Now, if Paul addresses one side of this, the indulge the body's every urge, basically because it doesn't matter, the sexual immorality side, that necessitates that he addresses the other side of this issue. Now he must deal with the other side of the pagan issue that so affected some of the Christians in Corinth, which is the ascetic side, the suppression or denial of human sexuality. Did you notice when we read it aloud that it's not exactly like Paul minced words? Do you see why the suppression of human sexuality could be 
an attractive option to these Greeks who had converted from Christianity from such a sexually immoral morass of excess and debauchery. Do you see how that could be attractive at all? Everybody's going, no, that sounds really, that sounds, no, I don't get it. Try. They wanted to be free from the base sexual urges and appetites that had so what? Enslaved them. They wanted to be completely free of those things. The Christian sexual ethic, which condemned the excess and plurality of partners and anything is okay kind of thinking, could easily then be expanded beyond what, what Scripture teaches to mean this. The more suppression of sexual urges, the better. Even if you were married to one person and desired to only be committed to your spouse, that could easily be applied there if you're thinking this way. Now, why is that? Because there's nothing more enslaving, as we've seen Paul deal with, than sexual sin. We all know this. All of a sudden, your mind just goes blank. You wanted to serve God, but no, this other thing is so strong. That, dot, dot, dot. So, some of these people who had been living those kind of lives, and there was probably many, some of them decided that the only way they could deal with that even if they were married, was to just do away with it completely. If you don't have a sexual relationship with your spouse at all, don't indulge at all, that's being super ascetic. Denying your body of any pleasure in order to be more spiritual, that's what asceticism is. Now, Down through history, there's a special brand of Christianity that instituted this. Everybody know? Monks. Vows of celibacy. And you might notice that this is not just exclusive to Christianity. Let that sink in a little bit because that'll help us, that'll help you understand why this was such a huge issue and why Paul wrote this in his letter. So he writes, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. Now, some translations. If you look at the New American Standard, it has a more literal rendering here. It says, it is good not to touch a woman. Now, what's kind of funny about this is that that's a euphemism. A euphemism is a way of saying something that's not quite as direct and in your face as what you're trying to say. Touch a woman. You can, what, say that means a lot of things. 
the ESV just goes ahead and put what it meant, which is what it means in this, te- in this context. So to touch a woman is actually a milder way of saying to have sexual relations. And it makes it look like this is what Paul says instead of what the Corinthians said to him a little bit. Because this is not a saying of Paul's. This is a quote. You notice the ESV puts it in quotes. It's what they said. This was one of their slogans that they were adopting. This is what they're asking. And that's a big debate. There's some debate about which view is correct, whether this is what Paul said or whether this was he was quoting what they said. But I, in this case, I think it's not Paul's advice, but rather a saying of some of the Corinthians who have misunderstood what Paul had said about celibacy, which we'll get to as we go through this. The issue at hand, then, is that some of the Corinthians believe that even married people should abstain from sexual relations, which Paul begins to clear up here in verses 2 through 4, rather directly. He writes, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have, understand, his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And before our world starts screaming, likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. How much do you hear that preached in our day? What is Paul's point? Well, was immorality a great problem in Corinth? Yeah. One of the greatest of all history. There's not too many cities that if you went another part of the world and said, you're living like a Corinthian, they would understand that you meant you are immoral, you're living this way, you're doing this, that, and a whole list of things. So he's simply saying that there definitely was a great temptation to return to previous immoral ways. That's all he's saying. But for married couples, it is vital to recognize the fact that a husband and wife have authority over each other's bodies. So, monogamy is strongly affirmed here, and sexual temptation is recognized as the strong temptation it is. And one of the reasons it's so strong is because our first reaction is, it's not strong, I can handle it. It's so strong, it's so great, in fact, that married couples must enjoy the conjugal rights of being married. Doing so will greatly impede the temptation of infidelity. Don't miss the parity of the roles of husband and wife here. 
Yes, Paul recognizes the divine plan of creation about headship and submission that he writes about in Ephesians chapter 5. But even that is defined in sacrificial terms of leading and loving by what? Not being selfish. And here he also teaches that the husband's body belongs to his wife and vice versa. Authority here means to exercise authority over something, especially with the sense and in the context of belonging to one another. Now, there's some applications that we have to be considered so far, don't you think? Husbands and wives are sexual equals. This keeps one from forcing or demanding the other to do something offensive to them. Folks, I don't know whether you realize this or not, but do you realize we live in a part of Texas that has more domestic violence sexually and otherwise than any other place per person? The percentages are higher around here than anywhere else in the whole state. So don't talk about, I'm not going to live in the big city because of this and this and this, and I don't like the big city because of that and that and that. It's worse here. It reaffirms Paul's point that sexual relations are indispensable to marriage, too. Except in the case of distance or illness. It reveals the error of the teaching that couples should abstain from marital relations. Instead, within the context of marriage, sexual relations do not defile the body. And anyone who teaches otherwise is adopting a pagan view that the body is evil and that the sexual urge is some kind of lower passion. God created us as sexual beings and he has given the wonderful context of marriage in which to enjoy each other. It's not just about procreation. Belonging to one another in God's design also means that we should cherish our spouse in every area. Are there times, then, when abstinence from sexual relations within marriage is permissible? Yes, Paul deals with that next. But it's usually not what we think. It's only by mutual agreement and as we see starting in verse 5 and only for a short time, a limited time. Do not deprive one another, verse 5, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Even here, we see a warning and a limitation, which shows how important what Paul has already said is. 
mutual abstinence should be practiced with great care. Paul doesn't think it's necessary or required. Why? Because we so easily overestimate our ability to withstand temptation. And then comes verses 6 and 7. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. So at the time Paul wrote this, what was his status? He was single. But we don't know if he was ever married. Nobody has a clue. Some think that because he was the status of a rabbi, uh, in part of the, the Pharisees, they required a man in that position to have a wife. So it's very likely that he did, which means what? That if he was single now, which he definitely is, he's probably a widower. But again, we don't know that for sure. So what is he saying here? Well, after commending marriage and sexual relations in marriage, he then commends singleness. saying he wishes all were as I myself am. Not a command. The qualification of that statement comes in the rest of verse 7. But each has his own gift from God, one from one kind and one of another. So what does gift here mean? It means, this is I think the best way to describe this, it means a wholesome inclination given by God, either to pursue marriage or to refrain from it. In other words, not every person should be married or seek marriage. Some have the gift of being married, and others have the gift of singleness. That's what he's talking about. And note that Paul did not expect all believers to be unmarried. And he didn't expect those who were then single to necessarily stay single. And for those already married, it would be wrong to live as if they were single. Tying tying together all the sides here. To become celibate while married. In other words, the gift of singleness is not referring to one of the spiritual gifts that we may be familiar with. This is a gift of self-control, especially in the area of sexual desire and the resolve and peace of living without a spouse. Celibacy is a gift that when recognized and accepted can lead to contentment and happiness throughout a whole life. Not to mention the opportunities for service that married people just don't have. And he's going to talk more about this at the end of this chapter. 
So if you are single, it is good. That's good. But it's not required for all believers by God. So if someone comes to the pastor of their church, a church, and says, what's my gift here? Would I know? Would there be evidence maybe? Yeah. The point is, we've got to understand that this is the big, bigger picture. And with that, we will close in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we, we know how we struggle with various sin. Lord, we know that you sent your son to pay the price for that sin and that there's now no condemnation for those who have believed in Christ and have been covered by his blood, completely forgiven. Lord, you know that we continue to struggle and you use our struggle in this world, in this life, to prepare us for an eternity with you where there will be no more sin. Oh God, we pray that we could view who we are in this world rightly. Lord, we know it's no accident that you have placed us in this world at this time in history, in this particular place, for reason. That we can stand for you, believe and trust and walk with you in a world that is turning its back more and more upon you. Oh God, you have let us know in your word how enslaving sin is. And you know what it does to our hearts when we become enslaved. Because you have freed us in Christ Jesus from the power to have to be enslaved. Oh God, we recognize that our desire to exercise the freedom that you give us in your son to serve you, to enjoy the world you created, the relationships that you provide, the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ, all that is impeded when we are brought down by our still residing sin. And, oh Lord, we pray that we would desire you so much and love you so much that we would follow you faithfully, more faithfully, as we seek to serve and love you alone, recognizing our weakness, our sin, and our proclivities. We pray that you would use this church to be honest about where we stand, to walk with one another, encouraging one another to stand for you. 
to speak when you want us to speak, but to live lives that call attention to the holiness that we pursue in him. Lord, we know that we may look strange to those around us, but we pray that that we would not look at them as complete strangers and look down because of our position in Christ, but rather that we could offer hope, the hope of the forgiveness of sin, the hope of knowing you and enjoying you in this life that you have given us in ways that people who do not know you cannot experience to the fullest degree. Not having the hope, not having the certainty of knowing who they belong to and why they're here. And, oh, Lord, we pray that you would give us a burden to share that truth, the truth of the gospel, with those who do not know you. Lord, we also, as we sang that last song this morning, written by John Newton, it seemed so dark at first. But, Lord, we know what you did in his life and how he was so involved in ministry of dealing with people who were still stumbling so badly they actually questioned their own salvation. We pray that we could pay attention to those parts of the scriptures, especially in the Psalms, and for, for instance, that hymn, and realize that you use all things to bring us closer to you and realizing our need for depending upon you and to be faithful and your strength of the Holy Spirit that you give us that we actually are individual temples of your spirit. Help us act based on those truths. We thank you for being able to worship you together. We need to worship you together. And we thank you for the joy that we have because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Lord, we ask those things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, if you'll please stand for our benediction. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.